0: People of Earth, if you can hear my voice, you have arrived at another episode of Breakfast with Brent Pope. I am your host, Brent Pope, and my guest today is Steven Bernstein. And let me tell you, it seems like this gentleman does everything film-related. Director, cinematographer, producer, actor, best-selling writer, and he does all of these things at a stratospheric level. And not only that, he's worked on projects like, like Water for Chocolate, Monster White chicks, half baked. So this guy's worked on a lot of different types of stuff and all very cool stuff. And that's not all. We had breakfast at an eatery that goes all the way back to breakfast episode number one, Harvest Moon. So, lights, camera action, because we've got Steven Bernstein today on Breakfast. Pick it up! Welcome to Breakfast with Brent Pope. Breakfast. This young lady just smashed the lids on all these cakes in the bakery (laughs) section. I could go on a (laughs) Hallmark card. My uh, guest today. Oh, I'm gonna need to hear all about that. I didn't need any extra sausage. He adds character to my crew. <laughs> Is yeah. a goat pit a real thing? Breakfast. What? Welcome to Breakfast with Brent Pope. Great place to hang out and good food too. I'm always playing blue collar guys. Let me screw through the pipe. I wouldn't jump up and down until we stabilize the hydraulics. I love <laughs> a crawler. All yeah. my uncles got the gout. Jalapeno slash cheddar waffles. See, who doesn't love that? It's breakfast time. Breakfast, the only show where bacon, pancakes, Hollywood. I'm your host, Brent Pope. You're known for many things, so it's hard to even know where to start. Director, cinematographer, screenwriter, best-selling author. So you've worn many hats. I'm curious, which one of
1: those are you most surprised fits on your head? Surprised? Yeah. Um, That's a hard one. Um, I I, I don't know if if any of them, I guess they're all surprising. I, I don't think I ever quite felt that... Uh, I had uh, or deserved a place at the table, whatever the big table was, that I always felt that I was a fraud or an interloper. I still do. So whenever someone is foolish enough to hire me, um, I think the surprise is that they don't discover that I'm the fraud that I, I know myself to be. So even when I would be working on successful films um, and the film succeeded and I apparently had done my job, I still felt somehow that I'd pull the wool over someone's eyes. I think it's a, a, a something that a lot of artists, a lot of writers, a lot of cinematographers, all um, share. Um, first, the fear, and then the, the, the certainty that you're going to be discovered to be not as great as people think you are. But look, I appreciate the introduction. I, I'm glad that we're sustaining this myth because it'll keep me employed. <laughs>
0: Okay, so that's interesting you say that. The fact that at least part of you feels like that you don't deserve what you're getting, is that part of what drives you? Or is that part of what keeps you uh,
1: focused and working really hard? What a, what a great question. Um, look, absolutely part of it is the sense that I've got to prove myself, probably to myself. Doing something I do easily uh, doesn't seem a challenge. So I don't take uh, much pleasure in succeeding at something I do easily. So I tend to take on things that I find difficult that I haven't done before. I often say to young directors when they're first casting, your inclination will be to cast people that you know already. If you're a student, you're gonna be casting other students. If you're a first time director, you're gonna be casting inexperienced actors. Uh, but don't do it. Do what you fear and hire actors who terrify you because they're working at such a high level, because that means you're actually working with quality. There's something that's naturally destructive in ourselves to take the easiest path, and the easiest path usually means that we won't achieve anything of of significance. So for me, uh, to prove myself, I'm constantly undertaking things that frighten me. And the more I do things that frighten me, the more I seem to have been succeeding. I also fail from time to time. But, of course, we end up learning a lot more from failure than we do from success.
0: Yeah, I I think that's really true. I will tell people, too, don't cast those actors that you know and love that are great. Cast me, you know. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Uh, I think that's interesting, though. Because, well, but you actually you actually make an important point yeah. there, which is uh, don't do the thing, the obvious thing, and and it's the same thing with taking risks. Sometimes in a casting session, you'll meet an actor, and someone will say, "Well, they're not. I know you like them, Stephen. They did a great job here, um, but they they they're not. They have no value in the in the marketplace. They're not known, but." You say, well, but they're great. And ultimately, you discover that trusting your intuitions about quality as opposed to trying to chase what people tell you is the certainty of following an orthodoxy, which will give you success, is always the best way to go. But it takes courage to trust your intuitions.
0: Do you, when you are in the process of casting, let's say, a, a lead in one of your moves and you got a couple names, what's more viable, that the person is... You find them to be very talented and interesting to watch or that they are great for this
1: part never great for this part always about the people usually i won't read actors i'll I'll talk to them about what they're reading i'll talk to them about their lives i'll talk to them about their life experiences what films they like what they're interested in culturally i'm interested in their processes creatively i use a lot of improvisation on set both before shooting uh, while i'm still rewriting uh, sometimes just before a take and sometimes even in front of the camera and i know how comfortable they are um, with that i'm interested in their general take on the characters or the narrative um, so we can engage in a conversation It doesn't mean that i think that i'm right or that I want them to follow my uh, dictates or structure or order, but I want to see their thought processes. And then I discover in that an interesting artist with whom I might be able to collaborate. That's what I'm most interested in, not whether they can memorize a, a, both a line and a performance by rote and then repeat it to please me. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in discovery. I think all creative processes split into two parts, which is which is planning, um, and then discovery. Mm-hmm. And I think we put too much emphasis on the planning because this is uh, the film industry is driven by money and we want to be safe and we want to be responsible and not enough on on the discovery of what we find out through improvisation or um, through experimentation. It sounds like if you were starting a company and you were
0: looking for like kind of a, a co-founder of your company, you're like, who do I really want to work with for the long haul? And who do we I want to see that we kind of get along and we have similar thought processes creatively. Very important to you. Or different
1: thought processes. Yeah. Um, I want to be challenged all the time. I'm always hiring people who are not like me, but different from me. Uh, Not who have had my experiences, but different experiences. So when we collaborate, the result is richer than uh, uh, each of us individually. That makes a lot of sense.
0: You've worked on a lot of cool films, you know, Monster Academy Award winning Okay, so Charlize Theron wins Best Actor for Monster. When you're shooting it, are you aware, or do you think like, "Wow, this is people are really going to enjoy this"? Or are you just, or are you in the process
1: at the time? You know, uh, I think it's a great question because I, what I've discovered is that um, remarkable sets engender remarkable films. The set on Monster was uh, remarkable. I just come off. Uh, doing all the big second-unit action stuff on SWAT, which was an enormous film Mm -hmm. with 32 cameras and hundreds of crew people and uh, uh, helicopters and everything you can imagine. And I went straight from that to um, uh, the middle of Florida with a small crew, uh, one camera, and a first-time director. And Charlize, I kind of knew of. Um, She was a very beautiful actress who'd been in some uh, good supporting roles, but not someone you think of as substantive and what happened is once i got there uh, patty jenkins the director was someone who was singular and remarkable uh, both in vision and in leadership um she inspired uh, tough as you can imagine but at the same time gentle and facilitating everything you would hope for in a creative artist and Charlize was completely dedicated to the role i realized that it's so hard to make it in hollywood that whatever advantage we have, we tend to try to exploit. And if you're beautiful, and Charlize is one of the most beautiful people on the planet, right. your inclination is to be beautiful all the time because that's going to get you the payday. Um, Charlize was not beautiful in Monster. Those fake teeth she had, um, the skin, the clothes that she would, the, that would treat her skin with makeup, the clothes that she would wear Every day for the entire shoot without changing, the smoking that a non smoker would do, the awful places that she insisted on in sleeping in to prepare for the role, all this went to her total dedication. And the combination of Patty and Charlize then really, through osmosis, passed the entire crew. And all of us became obsessed with creating something that was both unique. Uh, and emotionally powerful. And about three quarters of the way through the shoot, I realized it was one of the most magical films I've ever been on, to the point that on one special day, Christina Ricci and Charlize, uh, the two lovers, were having to say goodbye to each other. And with one of the grips, we had a local grip, big guy, tattooed, enormous, man of few words, but terrifying, came up to me and he said, hey, uh, Stephen, the crew has this idea that we want to help Charlize and Christina concentrate. We're thinking maybe no one should speak today. This was coming from a grip. And I said, oh, that's an interesting notion. Yeah, why don't we try it? So none of us spoke. We gestured with hand signals. The set, even when we were lighting, setting things up completely silent. And then Charlize and Christina then did this incredible performance. Very, very powerful. And during the, the take, the idea was the camera was going to push in because... We encode ideas in part with the camera. And I want to push the camera in to emphasize the emotion that particular moment. And I was completely quiet, except I heard someone gently sobbing in the background. So moved were they by the performance. And so I looked over my shoulder to see who was crying. And there was the script with all his tattoos as big as a house, tears running down his face, watching this performance. Now, when you get your so-called technicians that engaged in the creative process, you know you're doing something yeah. um, absolutely magical.
0: Did you turn to him and say, shh, <laughs> you're ruining everything.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was his idea that God is there. Unfortunately, the the sound man was, uh, was sensitive enough that he knew which direction to point the microphones.
0: That's a really interesting thing to happen on a movie set have you ever done that before or since?
1: I do it all the time. When I did yeah. uh, Last Call with uh, John Malkovich and Risa Fonz and Roman Legarry and Tony Hale, I thought it very important to have a silent set. So um, I insist on two things. First of all, that everyone feels they're part of the collaborative process. So this uh, notion of improvisation extends beyond performance so that every technician, every artist, every artisan, Uh, feels that they have an avenue that they can communicate their ideas. I create the broad strokes, the overall vision, but then I encourage everyone to say, here's the vision. Now, in terms of cinematography, how can we use camera movement to contribute to that vision? In terms of lighting, how can we treat color and and, uh, contrast to contribute to that vision? Uh, To the art department, how can we use the production design to contribute to that so that everybody feels... Uh, knowing what we're trying to achieve, what they can elicit or what they can make use of to contribute to our overall vision of that production. And so we do that in a working environment that's conducive to creative expression. It's silent, it's loving, and it's collaborative, and it works.
0: Speaking of emotionally charged movies, you worked on uh, like Water for Chocolate. That's a foreign film. It's in Spanish. Do you speak Spanish?
1: It is. I speak Spanish badly. As okay. I, as I speak most languages badly.
0: So how did that come about and what was, did that make it difficult working on that set?
1: Well, it was a fascinating uh, experience that my friend, Gabriel Beristain, who just shot Black Widow and who I've worked with uh, frequently, we had both worked in England together at the same uh, company. And Gabby had come back to America before um, I did. Um, and he was working here for a while, and he got a call from uh, the director of that film he was saying, hey, Gabby, can you come shoot this? And Gabby couldn't, and they said, can you recommend another cinematographer? And Gabby very kindly recommended me, and they said, look, we need you for about a week because basically the film is pretty much shot, or so they said. And so I flew from England to Ajunya in the north of Mexico, and uh, five months later, um, I, was still, uh, I was still shooting, And again, uh, how you understand when you're on a film set through some sort of odd intuition whether the film is going to succeed or not. So for all the chaos of that film, and we were constantly running out of money, um, we couldn't buy film stock of one type, so we got film stock of another type, so we'd mix them together. They wouldn't match. We didn't have enough petrol to put in the bus, so it ran out of gas halfway to the set, so we had have to walk across the desert carrying the cameras. There was a storm when the house that we had built um, in the middle of the desert blew down and had to be rebuilt. Um, one of the uh, key actors got into an argument with someone and left the set. The generator driver hadn't been paid and drove off. So all madness and chaos. And part of me thought the film will never see the light of day. But part of me thought, wow, if this film ever does finish, something magical is happening here. And it's the same sort of vibe that was on Monster, an absolute dedication to the vision, an absolute concentration, and a sense of loyalty among the crew to what we all thought was something very, very important.
0: Well, that's cool. I mean, those are two really very well-known and very well-liked movies, high accolades for both. I'm interested because this kind of blows my mind when when I look at your resume, because you <laughs> do those movies, and then you do other iconic movies that are... Completely the opposite of that. White Chicks, The Water Boy, Half Baked, even Scary Movie 2, I think is the best of that franchise. How do you do both of those things? I mean, how are you thought of for both of those things? Because, you know, in Hollywood, like a lot of times people are like, oh, they try to put you in this thing where he or she does this and they do
1: that. And that's it. It's an odd thing. And I look, I've gone in for interviews and the director probably hasn't looked at my resume beforehand. And they'll be like, oh, a of chocolate. Oh, monster. oh, you worked with Noah Bombek, Fantastic. Oh, you worked with John Favreau. Um, you know, how cool. Oh, white chicks. Scary movie, too. You know this is a drama, don't you? Yeah, I, I know it's a drama. Look, I'm into something different than other people are. I'm very interested in the process, the creative process of filmmaking, how we use the language of film. Language is made up of two parts, uh, what we signify and how we signify it, how we elicit emotions or stimulate uh, ideas and audiences. So it's a, it's a science and it's an art. And I'm interested in how we do that, be it for a comedy or a drama or an action film or a thriller. It's about uh, making use of the devices available to us, be it a composition, a camera movement, be it lighting, be it sound, any of those other things that I've mentioned before. So when you have those skills or when you've studied those things, they're applicable to any genre in which you decide to work. I also think that I have a relatively good or evolved sense of humor. And I also believe very much in facilitating others. So the reason they like me on the sets of comedies is that crews feel comfortable with me. Actors feel comfortable with me. I've directed actors a lot. So as a cinematographer those actors feel comfortable in checking with me about how uh, their physicality is working in an individual scene. So I think the skills I have are applicable to a wide variety of genres.
0: I mean, that does speak to your talent, that you're able to work on those, those different types of projects.
1: Are there more similarities than differences when working on those two, or, or are they completely different? No, I, I think they're, they're very uh, similar. I think uh, happy sets make better films. When I work with Keen Ivory Wayans, and I've worked with them three times, White Chicks, Little Man, um, Scary Movie... The sets are very happy places, full of um, people innovating, experimenting, and improvising. Lots of uh, genuine positive reinforcement. Two different types of positive reinforcement. There's the faux positive reinforcement, where inexperienced directors say, great, 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 let's do another take. And then real positive reinforcement. Keenan will tell you when you've done something well and when you've done something poorly. So you know when you're working with an honest speaker, as I try to be when I'm directing, this is what I've learned from working with all these great directors, that when I say something isn't good, the actor hears me. But then later when I say it is good, they think to themselves, oh, he tells the truth. So he's told me this is good. I can move on. Yeah. Um, that's a lesson that's applicable to any type of film you're working on. And these skill sets are applicable to any source of film. So I I think that you just learn that you've got to facilitate. You've got to speak honestly. You've got to be good at your, your individual jobs and then they'll hire you for any sort of film that, that you want. The other point that you made that the reputation you have kind of affects what films you work on is absolutely, um, you know, true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's kind of unjust because there are great comedians, for example, who have become great serious actors. Um, and there are serious actors who have spectacular comic timing. Uh, John Malkovich, um, who was in my last film and is a good friend of mine now, Uh, John, of course, is known for drama or for thrillers. But there was quite a bit of comedy in in Last Call. And a lot of it centers around John, whose comic timing is impeccable. I think he's, yeah, I think he's a
0: fantastic comic actor, even though that's not what he's mostly known for. He's really funny. He's very, very funny. On Um, set
1: and off set, by the way, hasten that, yeah.
0: You know, this reminds me of a conversation I have with my friends a lot, which is we talk about when you're, you're looking at a movie that's coming out and I say, what's what is the predictor of what's going to be what I think is a good movie? And for me, the best predictor is who the director is of the movie, because a lot of time the stars, they didn't write the material, so they're performing it. But, you know, there's certain, only certain things you can do with a certain type of material. And the, the writer also, they might write a brilliant script, but then the director takes it in a certain way or the actors that they have aren't able to perform that script the way it probably needs to be performed. But I think the director is the most consistent way if I because if I see it's a fairly brothers movie, OK, I know it's going to be a pretty funny comedy. If it's Coen Brothers, I'm pretty certain it's going to be a good film because I know the way that they usually work. But if it's George Clooney, I was like, well, I'll probably see it because I like Clooney but I don't know if it's going to be a good movie. What do you think about that?
1: I think it's a good point. Look, what a director does more than anything is engenders a atmosphere uh, on set. And if you can create a nurturing film set where actors and crew members and artists are free of fear, where people feel they can take risks and fail without the risk of being in real jeopardy, then you have a much better chance of succeeding. When you're working on a set where you're terrified of failing, you are inhibited. You won't take risks. You don't push the boat out. And ultimately, you might do something good, but never something great. Freeing a set and fellow collaborators of fear as a director, if you can succeed in that, you're going to succeed with your film.
0: I did notice when we, because we met for the first time today when we had our breakfast, which we will talk about in a minute. Immediately when we started talking, you made me feel comfortable. You weren't full of crap. Uh, You were being, and you weren't superficial. And also I felt like you knew what you were talking about and I felt comfortable. And I I immediately was like, I bet he's a great director. (laughs) I bet he's great to work (laughs) for as a director. Because that's what you want as an actor is to go in and to know what the expectations are. And to get honest and direct feedback. It doesn't do me
1: any good for them to say, good, good, good. And I was like, okay. You said that- expectations. I, I, I don't have any expectations. I, I, I This idea of discovery as opposed to planning. What I say to my actors, let's see where this goes. And then I'm always interested in what they att- attempt to do. Even if I don't think it works, I'm hesitant to use the, the, the term, within the vision that I have, I still study it. And it gives me an insight into their take on the character. It gives me a take Onto the character, even if I wrote it, I understand the character better having seen someone else perform it and then try to mediate what they understand that character to be. So it's just so much fun to explore things together. The idea that they've got to succeed is a notion that I've got to free them from right away. And same thing with everybody else. There is no success. What I'm interested in is that we experiment together without fear. Let's see what we can achieve. The thing I say most often is that I don't know. Absolute honesty or radical honesty, which is where this all comes from, is the most essential, uh, I think, notion for anyone in a position of leadership like a director, which is when you don't know something, say you don't know something. And so when an actor does uh, a scene and you come up to them and you can say to them afterwards, for some reason it's not working, but I don't know why. The message you're conveying to the actor is one you don't know, fair enough, but also that, hey, when I have a vulnerability or a weakness, I'm going to tell you about it. I'm not going to manipulate you, and I'm not going to be dishonest in the creation of a persona that doesn't exist. And that is what engenders a collaboration that is better than I am as a person. I can be flawed, uh, but my communication hopefully won't be.
0: Let's take a step backwards in time because we've talked about a lot of the cool stuff you've worked on. You were born in the United States. Where were you born in the United States? Buffalo, New York. and then you. But you moved to England.
1: I did. An I eight. did. I, I. I. Yeah.
0: Is there something from that experience, you kind of having living in Buffalo and then moving to England, that shaped how you are as
1: in on your creative journey? I. I'm interested in people who've had many and varied experiences. I love people who've traveled a lot. I love people who've had different jobs. I loved people who uh, alter their direction, part of the way through the lives. So yeah, um, Buffalo, which is a kind of a grim, but I think charming industrial town in the Northeast of America. England, London, almost exclusively. But I've also lived in India where I I, I did a film. Um, I've traveled in uh, some 35 different countries around the world. I've worked uh, on films virtually everywhere. And as you rightly say, I've been a cinematographer on, on big feature films. I'm a Screenwriter now principally writing mm-hmm. TV series and feature films and things. Different jobs, different countries, and each thing informs me in a different way. I have a better understanding of character when I'm writing character, having lived um, in Europe, having spent a long time in Greece, for example. I could never write the characters who live in those places, come from those places, if I haven't lived there. The many failures I've had in my different jobs and occupations. I ran a business in, in the UK. We were doing some property development. I ran a, a, a film production facility with editing rooms. Terrible business person, terrible, terrible business, terrible at money. But I've learned so much about its nature. And I just wrote a script about a failed business person who gets involved in cryptocurrency. And people, uh, I wrote a novella based on it as well. And people are loving the novella and wondering how I could know so much about it. I know so much about it because I'm a failed business person myself, so what better thing to do? And then England has a rich tradition of theater and of literature. I was very active in theater um, in the UK. I saw a lot of theater. I directed theater. I wrote theater. I worked with a lot of actors there. I trained there. Uh, But it's a very different sensibility and worldview than the American one, particularly from an industrial town like Buffalo. So, I had no particular plan. I wasn't going to England to become English. Um, but, the common, but the combination of those two things is what made me the person I am now, which is someone with a many and varied background.
0: Isn't that interesting? Everybody is kind of a culmination of the things that they've experienced. I know you just kind of touched on a little bit, too. Like I've had some spectacular failures in my life that are incredibly painful to talk about, but they also are like what probably moved me forward as a person the most and gave me the most insight and gave me the most uh, ability to just persevere. It's like, okay, I did that. It was really bad, but I'm still here.
1: Yeah, no, and, to be, and to be empathic as well. When you see, but for the grace of God, people who are, are you doing the same thing, but have failed more consistently, but you see yourself in them, yeah. you have a profound connection. And part of being an actor is creating empathic reactions in audiences. So when you can show that you are but human, people are naturally drawn to you. I, This book that I wrote about this guy trying to raise money, I know what it's like not to have money and then ringing people up and kind of trying to convince them to give you some raising money for a movie. My first movie that I did uh, took me seven years to raise the money, and uh, I I found it incredibly difficult to ask people. But what a fascinating insight it gave me into the human condition. So the more you do, the more it informs your art.
0: One of my favorite uh, singer-songwriters, Ben Folds, I don't know if you're aware of Ben Folds, has a song where he says, uh, I don't get many things right the first time. In fact, I'm told that a lot. Yes, that's
1: perfect. <laughs> that's, or, or the second or the third time. I mean, yeah. you know, the tragedy of, of being human is we tend to repeat the same things over and over again. And only late in life do we discover what those patterns were all the time. Wow. Well, you mentioned you, you do have a book coming out next year. It's going to uh, come out. Early next year. It, it's about these things that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, more generally, it's, it's specifically, uh, more generally specifically, it's about the creative process. Mm-hmm. How we take ideas that we have and how we realize them as filmmakers. So, you know, I keep mentioning camera because I was a cinematographer for a long time, but you've got a scene that you want to do. You want some dramatic uh, emphasis, and you think, okay, well, you put that in the performance, and maybe it's in the writing, but also maybe it's uh, in the camera. You put that camera on a dolly, and at some key moment, the camera rolls forward a little bit. It creates a visceral response in the audience. The audience physically feels emotionally changed at that moment just by the camera movement. What's fascinating is if you ask the audience what the camera was doing, most of the time the audience says, I don't think anything it was just sitting there, right? right? They're not even aware that you had loath used the term manipulated, but influenced them in, in, in that way. Same thing with, with lighting. If View in a film like Apocalypse Now, um, the the denouement where we see uh, Marlon Brando, there was so much conjecture about he wasn't lit because he's overweight. That was nonsense. What Coppola was trying to do was make this character iconic. This was the unconscious mind of, uh, of Martin Sheen. So you don't want to show the unconscious. You want to become iconic. You want to make it something surreal. So they backlit Brando. You couldn't see Brando's face. He was in shadow, so he became an idea rather than a physical embodiment of a person. Uh, That is using uh, lighting to create an idea. So you create ideas with lighting, with camera movement, with composition, of course, with performance and writing. How we use all these devices in our creative process to create reactions, be they visceral or intellectual in our audience. That's what the book is about. Rather than just thinking, as, as oft people say, we're just storytellers. No, no, we're not just storytellers. Right. It's not about the story. It's never about the story. The story is about the ideas that the story is serving. But the story is just one thing that's in the service of those ideas, so is camera, so is lighting, so is costume, uh, so is editing, so is music, all in the service of those ideas. That's what creative process is really about, not just storytelling.
0: Yeah. You know, another thing I was, that we had kind of discussed earlier is like having, since you've done so many of the jobs that are required to create a film or a TV show, you have kind of a holistic approach to it where you kind of know all the different parts that have to go in together at the same time. I'm very interested to read your book when it comes out. Film Production, A Filmmaker's Guide to the Creative Process. Guys, this sounds like it's going to be great for the screenwriters out there, the actors. Wherever you are in your creative journey, this is probably going to be a, a cool book to read and invaluable uh, knowledge that you get from people that have
1: done it, like Stephen Bernstein next well, year. Holistic, I'd like to say holistic that's exactly what it's about. And I think for every young director, um, or any director for that matter, the idea that you should only concentrate on performance, only script, is is misguided. Uh, for those directors who are uncomfortable with actors, the idea that you never speak to actors and just concentrate on camera is also misguided. Uh, all these things uh, integrate with the other. And the wonderful thing about film is one of the most complex of all the art forms. There's so many different things to work with. When you're doing theater, you can't edit. Um, and you can't really make much use of music. It's limited use of, of uh of lighting, but you can't really change the composition. The prosidium is the prosidium. Uh, So film is unique as an art form. There's so many different things we can make use of, and I think we have an obligation to make use of them all to create the most powerful art form and the most emotive movie. Hey,
0: before we go any further, we did have a wonderful breakfast at Harvest Moon in North Hollywood
1: uh, you had the veggie burrito i i how was that for you i did have the veggie on your recommendation now yeah i've had it many times i i have uh, i'm now attempting to be the world's longest living person so <laughs> i i have these re- regime um as well as doing nads and uh uh, sleeping a certain number of hours and uh, doing ice baths and all the rest of it, um, I have a fast each day where I stop eating at 8 o'clock at night and don't start eating till lunchtime the next day. So this is the first breakfast I've had in three years wow so it was a big a big moment for me and i had to i suddenly realized after they would made the arrangements for me to do this I said are you gonna have breakfast and i wasn't listening because it, was, it, was, it was the program was called yeah. kind of the breakfast right. and i just yeah. thought that's the name And then he said what do you want to eat and because um, i'm terrified of being disliked i said well he wants me to eat something i better eat something so um i said well i'll let him pick and i had no idea what to get and then the burrito was really tasty and i suddenly realized you know, how much I mixed breakfasts all these yeah. last three years. But it was great. It was really good and um, had no meat in it. You, of course, had the bacon I right did have, in front of me.
0: I know.
1: Well, look, life is nothing without being
0: confronted with temptation and, <laughs> and overcoming it. And you did, Stephen Bernstein. You could have reached over and had some of that bacon. You did not. I've been doing that kind of, I did it for a couple months, and then I've kind of fallen off from not eating from 8 o'clock at night till noon the next day really did work well for me. And I think I'm going to try to go back to that, maybe right,
1: New Year's again. Because I I I find it very helpful and I I feel very good when I do it. It's everything about fighting your your intuitions. I've discovered that there's a natural momentum towards comfort. And if we do everything that's uncomfortable, like jumping into freezing cold water, which I do every single day, I hate it, but it gives gives you a sense of virtue that you've achieved something with the day. uh, And it's also really good for your body. Uh, not eating meat, which I don't do. I miss meat terribly. I mean, I the smell of steak still drives me mad. The the, yeah. the 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 uh, the bacon today, but uh, again, by not doing it, I have a sense of achievement each day that even if I've done nothing, I've done something because I resisted uh, uh, resisted temptation. So, yeah. so how was your how was your breakfast burrito? The burrito veg- was was really good. It was huge. Yeah, um, it was. Uh, Uh, Like the size of a log, but um, it was really tasty, and uh, I had a bit of sour cream on it, which Mm -hmm. was uh, you know fantastic. I had a a coffee with uh, some oat milk to go with it, so it was very satisfying. And what was fascinating about the place where we ate was everybody we met was an actor. I I thought it was a set. I kept waiting for the walls to be dropped down and discover there was a crew behind um, each uh, portal because. When I first went there and we couldn't find each other, um, there were five or six actors talking about acting. And then I went outside to sit down and have my coffee. And one actor was trying to seduce another actor by talking about his improv exercises and the great success he was going to have. And then we came in and our waiter was an actor and the waitress was an actor. Mm -hmm. And then we couldn't remember the name of some actor and someone was putting some Sugar in their coffee and leaned over and told us who it was yeah they were clearly, <laughs> That's clearly right. an actor. So it was um it was it was a bit like that Jim Carrey film. What was it? Um where they put him in the false world and uh Oh uh the Truman Show. Truman Show. I felt like we were in the Truman
0: Show. Do you ever feel like that? I kinda sometimes do, where I feel like you'll see somebody like, wait, I saw that person earlier, like a couple blocks away. Are they extras in this weird
1: and then you feel insane thinking that, but... Yeah, I think I think like all the pathological narcissism, but yes, unfortunately, <laughs> I, 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 I think, you know, I think we all have that feeling that really um, everyone is in our world and uh, is just acting in it. And uh, yeah, I think there's an article in Scientific American that said it's impossible for any of us to imagine our own deaths. We can't imagine the absence of consciousness. And it's a terrifying thing to ruminate on. And I've tried very hard... What will it be like not to exist? And you can't imagine it. So part of us always sees things through the filter of our own narrative, that everyone's fitting into our world. But of course, they're not. We're inconsequential. And probably 50 years from now, no one will be listening to this podcast. But what about this? We were
0: at Harvest Moon, right? Eating breakfast. And I ran into Ty White, who was the gentleman that I had just done a scene with on. It's a new show that just came out, American Auto, by the same people that did Superstore. I mean, that's such a random encounter that I happened to run into him while I'm with you and it was the last guy I did a scene with on a TV show. Maybe Moon is just the happening place. Maybe.
1: Or maybe just those... Look, one of the things that we discover in art is that we all are looking for shape and order. We are terrified by the idea that everything is chaos. So we look for structure even where it sometimes doesn't exist. So coincidence is one of those things that says... Well, maybe the sacred hand is intervening divinely in our lives. Maybe this all makes sense. Maybe that you often feel that everything has a purpose. Well, maybe nothing has a purpose. Yeah. maybe everything we're doing is just wholly arbitrary and accidental. But that contemplation is too terrifying for any of us to uh, accept because that would mean that we don't have purpose for
0: the sake of the show and for Harvest moon, <laughs> since we're eating there today, I'm going to say that, Guys, you should go to Harvest Moon because probably, I mean, it's a possibility that Harvest Moon is the nexus of the multiverse.
1: Oh, even there you go. So it is. It is all ordered, and it's all about Harvest it's a Harvest Moon. Yeah. <laughs> right.
0: Well, thank you for going there with me. I do really like that place. How was your coffee? Uh, the
1: coffee was was uh, was great. Yeah. Um, you know, when you do something habitually for so long, you then wonder what about what you're not doing. Yeah. Um, I guess it's like being married. So I, I wonder now what coffee tastes like with regular milk. So I, I, I feel ultimately I'll be tempted in that direction. And again, I wonder what it would be like to tuck into a steak again at some point. Right. So, and now that I'm getting older, will I ever be able to do that? And if I do, will it spell doom?
0: So sorry to stop the party, but I had so much fun with Stephen Bernstein that we will be continuing our conversation next week in part two with Stephen Bernstein on Breakfast. And with that, we put another half-baked worthy episode of Breakfast with Brent Pope in the old to-go bag. See ya.